Uh, it is so good to come together to celebrate Christmas. It's good to be a part of this and to be a part of this family together and to have so much to celebrate. So thank you for being a part of this with us this season. So I got a weird question for you. Does anyone here know what a rare order is? No, I didn't know either. Um, <laughs> I recently read a mystery novel that uh, my wife got me for my birthday, and it's set in the 1600s in England and around monasteries and stuff. And I opened up the book, and at the very front, there's this map. And I like to look at the things at the front of a book before I read it, and it had all the rooms labeled. And one of the rooms was labeled a rare order. And I was like... And I looked to Christine and I said, do you know what a rare order is? No, I have no idea. Use it in a sentence. And I was like, well, it's on a map. <laughs> I don't know how to use it in a sentence. <laughs> well, what's around it? I looked at the map. There's no help. Now, thankfully, we have Google. And so I looked up what the word is. And I learned that a rare order is also called a necessarium. And it is a communal latrine found in monasteries, not to be confused with a lavatorium, which was where they washed their hands. Right? I mean, who cares, though? Um, <laughs> it's a strange place to start a sermon. Don't worry, we're not talking about monastic bathrooms today. Um, what I just described, though, is a fairly normal process that most of us go through at various times, where you come across a word you don't know, and you kind of try to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, you look it up. And these days, most of us don't use a dictionary. We use Google. But you look it up wherever you look it up, and you learn a new word. And I like that. It's fun. I haven't found a way to use rare order in a sentence in modern-day Canada yet, but I may hit you with it sometime randomly. Um, sometimes, though, this process is short-circuited. Sometimes you come across a word that you should look up and that you should learn more about, but you don't because you think you already know it, right? And I know this happens to me, and this happens a lot in Bible reading, um, often when we're reading through the scriptures, the Bible asks us to learn the word according to the way that the Bible uses it and not according to the ways that we might use it in everyday life. Sin is a really good example of this. If you run into sin as a word used in modern day language, it's probably describing a dessert. That's about the most common, the sinfully delicious. And if you take that kind of a usage and then you go read the Bible you're going to be confused. <laughs> you're going to be really confused about what's going on. And I know we don't do that. We know that sin doesn't mean extra delicious. Um, but we still use words in different ways. And if we're not careful when we're reading, we can take the way we use a word and put it here and not actually understand what's going on. And the word we're going to look at today is a word where that happens. It's the word glory. It's a word we use. It's a word that most of us just assume that we know the definition of. But I was talking to Christina as we, I always go over my sermons with her, and she always has amazing things to say. And, um, and she, was, she immediately thought, yeah, that's true, actually. We do just assume we know what it means, but I don't know if we do. And I said, well, can you define it? And then we had some fun. So turn to someone next to you and try to define glory. Actually, take a minute, talk. I want to hear voices. <laughs> No looking it up on your phone. No cheating. <laughs> <clears throat> I 
Now, depending on how much of a word person you are, that may or may not have been easy, and you may still be going and wrestling with it, and that's okay, but we're going to talk about glory today. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to read the passage, John 1, 1 to 18, and then we're going to talk about the word itself. We're going to go three parts. We're going to talk about the word itself in Scripture and in modern-day usage. Then we're going to talk about glory in Exodus. I know you thought we were done Exodus and we're in Advent, but I was planning this, that we would go from Exodus to John because they connect so much. And I talked last week about how John begins in Genesis, and then by verse 14, he's playing with Exodus. So we get to continue to interact. And then we're going to talk about glory in the Gospel of John. So we're going to talk about glory in three parts. But first, we're going to read the Scripture. And keep in mind the definition you just played around with and trying to figure out how you would tell someone what this word means if they didn't know. And please stand for the reading of the word. It's John 1, 1 to 18. It'll be on the screen, but you can always pull it out in front of you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, Without him, nothing has made, was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word and your goodness and for your glory. And I pray that you would reveal your glory to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're still sitting on verse 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and that's what we focused on last week, and we talked about God dwelling with us and that longing of God's heart. And, it goes, John goes on, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. We got to walk through that word for a minute. John, as we've seen, is writing with Genesis and Exodus in mind. And this is important when we talk about a word like glory, because John is already doing in Greek what I'm going to ask us to do in English, which is to say he's redefining a word. John is 
very much writing with Exodus in mind and with a specific passage of Exodus in mind that we're going to look at in the second section of the sermon this morning. And as you read the passage in Exodus 33, where Moses asks God to see his glory, this is in the background. And in Hebrew, there's this word for glory that does not translate into English very well. It just doesn't. Um, trying to find where I put that word in here so that I can tell you the Hebrew word, but I'll get there. <laughs> um, there's no good Greek word. And so he picks a Greek word. The Greek word is doxa. And doxa means opinion or reputation, which if you take it straight from Greek into the sentence, doesn't make any sense. The word became flesh and we beheld his opinion. <laughs> right? Like that doesn't... We beheld his reputation, yeah, maybe a little bit, um, but that's not what, what John is getting at. Oh, here's the word. It's the word kabod or kavod in Hebrew. And this word in Hebrew, it also means reputation, but specifically it means honor, prestige, and reputation displayed in visible splendor, okay? So when God comes on the mountain, and the mountain is on fire, and there's smoke, and the earth shakes, he is displaying for the people of Israel his glory. He's showing his honor and his prestige and his amazingness, but he's doing it visibly. And even though if you were to look up glory in an English dictionary, you wouldn't find that specifically visible component emphasized, because an English dictionary will talk about glory being high renown or great honor won through achievement. That's kind of glory. So you do something really great, and that earns you renown. It earns you honor. And that's very close to what John and what the Old Testament are writing about. But what it misses, what we mostly know intuitively, and I'll give you some illustrations to explain this, is that glory is really glory when it is shown forth. So one example of this is if you talk about an athlete. So you watch an athlete, a professional athlete, perform in his sport, and you are seeing that person's glory. You can say it like this, glory is a praiseworthy attribute shown forth. It's one thing to look up the statistics of your favorite athlete and find out how many goals they've scored and how many games they've won or how, whatever performance it is that they can do, and you can see the achievement that they've made on paper. But most of us wouldn't look at that paper and be like, look, glory, right? You don't, you don't do that. But you would watch them play. You would watch them compete and say that. It's like another example here from the mountains. You can read about a mountain. You can read about Everest. You can, you can tell how high it is and how cold it is and how hard it is to climb. But there is a very different thing to being there and actually seeing that mountain or the difference between you know, knowing about a mountain and summiting it, right? Then you are part of the visible display of the glory of God's creation. This is what John is talking about here. He's talking about the glory of God displayed in Jesus Christ. And like I say, we know that this is, even though we don't define it like this, we use the words like this. So vainglory is another example, right? Someone who's vainglorious is someone who's showing you how awesome they are, but they're actually not really that awesome. Um, they just think they are. And so when John writes, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory, 
the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. He's telling us that in Jesus, we see the praiseworthiness, the amazing good attributes of God shown forth. We see in Jesus the prestige and the honor and the reputation of God. And this connects us immediately back to Exodus. This connects us back to Exodus chapter 33. And I didn't spend a long time on this part of the story when we were walking through Exodus, but in Exodus 32 is the golden calf incident. We did spend a long time there where the people get impatient and they commit idolatry. They worship a golden calf. Right at the start of this relationship, they break it. And Moses intercedes for them. He says, don't destroy them. These are your people. If you do this, the nations are going to think you just brought them out here to kill them. And God relents, and he brings Moses back up on the mountain. And then in Exodus chapter 33, you get this incredible encounter where Moses, standing before God, says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And you have to think about that for a minute. Moses has seen a lot. He met God in the burning bush. He watched God decreate Egypt through these 10 signs of amazing power. He watched God completely devastate the Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea and then closing it upon them. He has traveled with the pillar of smoke and fire, the very presence of God, for a month through the wilderness at this point. He watched God come upon the mountain in fire and smoke and earthquake and lightning and thunder. He was with the elders when they saw the vision of God in his throne room, sitting upon a floor like sapphire. And now he says, show me your glory. And you kind of expect God to say, where have you been? (laughs) Like, weren't you paying attention? What more do you want to see? Um, But he doesn't. Because Moses isn't actually wrong to ask this question here. Let me read the passage from Exodus chapter 33. Moses has just asked, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will pass before you in my glory. And I will call my name Yahweh before you. And I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. And he said, you shall not be able to see my face. For a person shall never see my face and live. And the Lord said, Look, a place is near me. You shall stand on the rock. And when the glory, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a hole in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and you shall see my hind parts, but my face will not appear before you. And the Lord descended in a cloud, and he stood beside Moses there and called the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before his face, and he called Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished, but punishing the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. It's a great passage, and I did mention, like, this is one of the most, it is the most quoted passage within the Old Testament itself. But there's a few things to notice here. God says, I will show you my glory, but I won't show you my face. So you can see one, but not the other. And how he's going to accomplish this is he's going to pass by in his glory, but prevent Moses from seeing his face by covering him while he's standing in a cleft in the rock and just allow him to see his glory. But what is it that Moses sees 
when he sees the glory of God. What actually happens is that God speaks the heart of his character. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is going on at exactly the same time that God is not just speaking these things, but demonstrating them in his treatment of Israel. Because it is at this moment that he is forgiving and displaying compassion and covenant steadfast love and faithfulness to the people who have just betrayed him. He is displaying his glory. And the connection being made in Exodus is that this is what the glory of God looks like. All of the things that had come before were amazing, and they were acts of God, but they were not His glory. Most of us, most of the time, are tempted to see the glory of God in His power. That's what we want to look to. Look at how He destroyed those Egyptians. Look at how He wiped them out. Look at how he defeats the enemies of Israel in battle. And God does do those things. But when Moses says, show me your glory, he doesn't blow up the mountain. (laughs) He forgives. He's compassionate and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is exactly the point that John makes and that all the Gospels make about Jesus. What was begun in the wilderness when the people catch this glimpse of the glory of God is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, because in him we have beheld God's glory. The very word that Moses received on top of that mountain becomes flesh in Jesus Christ. And this too, John is making explicit. What does he say? He says, we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that last phrase, full of grace and truth, is a direct translation from Exodus 33, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, there's just not easy Greek words for this. So abounding becomes full, steadfast love becomes grace, and faithfulness becomes true. And to take it in reverse, true as in a true person, A faithful person is a true person. They're exactly the same word. If you look up the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word they use. And then steadfast love becomes grace. This is the connection that the New Testament authors make. In the Old Testament, it's this covenant steadfast love, and it's always gracious. It is always an unearned gift. It's always abundant and overflowing. And then abundance becomes full, which is a much... We can see how that works. So John is quoting this when he says, we have beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Jesus, God become man, lives out the character of God. He is God himself, and his whole life displays the glory of God. And again and again, if you read John with this in mind, you see Jesus making this clear. He says things like, I don't come for my own glory. I come to give glory to the Father. And I don't look for glory from men. I don't look to receive glory from the people around me. I look to receive glory from God. Everything I do, I do for Him. I do because He has told me. I speak His words. Throughout the gospel, John will tell us, 
right, there's all these signs in John's gospel. There's signs in all of them, but John arranges his gospel around these seven signs. And after each one, he, he'll tell us this was this sign. And they're connected to one of two things. Either Jesus says, I am, or he says, this is revealing the glory of God. So the very first sign is him turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And at the end of that, John says, in this way, Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples. Well, what did he do? He rescued a party. He rescued a wedding. Running out of wine would have been shameful to the bride and groom. It would have started off their whole marriage on the wrong foot, would have put them in bad light in the community, all these different things. And Jesus stops that from happening. And they don't even know it. They don't even find out. You want to talk about gracious and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Like, that's high moment of that. You get to the sixth sign, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus prays. And he says, I pray that they would see your glory in this and what I am about to do. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Again, what has he done? It's the abundant and unearned gift of life, of new life, compassionate, gracious. Jesus weeps over him, right? We see all of these things in these moments. But the high point of glory in the Gospel of John is the seventh sign, the cross. All of the disciples, all of the people around Jesus, they're expecting God's glory in powerful military victory. Destroy Egypt again. Take up the sword, wipe out the Romans. Do it like you did it before, God. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to wipe out this pagan empire. Jesus, at one point on his journey, he asks the rhetorical question. He says, don't you know that I could call on my father and he would send legions of angels right now? And if we're honest, if I'm honest, most of the time, that's what we want. We want the legions of angels. We want fiery chariots surrounding the enemy and just running them over. Um, That's the kind of glory we would like to see. But Jesus says, I am not going to do that because that's not the way. That's not the glory. That's not what's needed. That won't reveal the heart of God. And so the high point of glory the greatest moment of revelation of the praiseworthiness of God visibly displayed in splendor is the cross and resurrection. And if you stop and think about that for a moment, that's incredible. If you let go of the cross as a comfortable symbol of the Christian religion and you remember that it was the most excruciating, dishonorable, degrading, shameful, and humiliating way of execution that the Roman Empire could come up with, and they were good at it. And then you say that is the display of God's glory? It's supposed to be shocking. Crucifixion was brutal. And none of us look for glory in defeat. You just don't. You don't watch your favorite athlete lose and then say, wow, that was so good, right? That's not what we do. But it's right there on the cross that Jesus reveals the radiance of God's 
glory precisely because it is right there on the cross and in the resurrection that he reveals the gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiveness and justice of the God of all creation. That's the moment when he takes all of our sin upon himself so that we might be free. That's the moment of glory. Now, I'm getting way ahead of the story. We're on Advent, and I'm talking about the cross. But it's all wrapped up in here. What John is doing in his introduction is inviting us to watch for this. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. And you keep reading the Gospel of John, and you're looking for it. Where? Show me the glory. Where's the glory? And then you start to notice that Jesus is using this word in a way that we are not used to. Water into wine, his glory. Raising from the dead, his glory. Dying, dying on the cross. Because he's asking us to redefine glory. He's asking us to use this word in a different way. Not just as we talk about Jesus, though of course there first of all. But also as we talk about ourselves. The invitation is to reflect on what glory we are living for. Can we, like Jesus, say that we are not out for our own glory, but the glory of the Father? And that we don't want to receive glory from our fellow men, that that's not what we're interested in, but that whatever glory we want to receive, we want to receive from God. And in saying those things, are we ready to redefine glory the way that Jesus has? So that the real glory we seek is the glory of displaying the character of God in our lives. And that's not a small invitation. Not when you remember that the high point of the display of that glory in Jesus' life was his death on the cross and God raising him from the dead. But that's the invitation. Now, I don't know where you are in this journey. It may be that what you need to do is read through the rest of the Gospel of John this season, looking for glory, so that you can begin to redefine that in your own heart and in your own mind before you can begin to live it out. You need to see His glory, and it's here. It's written out for us in these stories. It's also, though, meant to be here. And this is where I went with the sermon last week. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we are invited to continue to make the Word flesh in our community and in, in our families and in ourselves by following Jesus in our own lives. The same is true for us in terms of glory. And if that's where you are on your journey, so if, if you understand, like, okay, I, I do see that, and I know enough about Jesus and the way He lived to understand where this is going, then live it out this season. Look for a way to do something like Jesus did. Now, I know none of us are likely to turn water into wine. Maybe. That would be awesome. And if you do, I want to hear about it. Um, but we can all still... <laughs> okay, okay, well done. Well done. If you don't know, that's Jim and Liz, and they have a, a wine-making business. <laughs> With or without that kind of miracle, though, we can all step in, in compassion, in mercy, in grace, in steadfast love and faithfulness, to do things 
like Jesus did, whether that's helping out someone who won't ever even know we helped with, with a party or with some event in their life where they're risking shame or dishonor in some way, um, or walking alongside of someone with the word of life. Again, apart from the power of God, and God does do this still, most of us won't get to see someone raised from the dead. But new life comes in many forms. And sometimes all it takes is a listening ear, or a kind word, or an anonymous gift. And it's a great season for these kinds of things. And to do that, recognizing that when we do those things, we are living into the glory of God. It's hard for me to let go of the pull towards power. Everybody wants a glorious display of awesome power. Um, But Jesus has told us that we who follow him will do the same kinds of things that he has done. And that as we follow him, we will see the glory of God. And I want that more. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word and for your goodness and your grace and your glory. I thank you that you show us what glory really is. And I pray that you would just set that lesson in our heart. That when we are pulled by the world to other kinds of things that aren't your glory and aren't like you, that we would recognize those for what they are and turn to your way instead of ours. Give us opportunities, Lord, to display your glory to the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.